Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that their sovereignty has not been ceded and that a treaty has never been signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. We're about to have a chat about public housing. Yesterday afternoon, a coalition of concerned residents, green parliamentarians, socialists, local councillors and public housing advocates met at Debney's Park in Flemington to celebrate the role public housing plays in their lives and the community while protesting the Victorian government's plan to sell off huge public housing blocks, nine of them in the inner city, to private developers. Joining us to talk about the event is Stephanie Price. Steph was the MC of yesterday's event. She works at West Heidelberg Community Legal Service and is a member of Socialist Alternative. Thanks for joining us, Steph. No worries. So how did the event go? What was the mood and uh, what was some of the information that those listening took away from the speakers? I, looked at, I thought the mood was, was really wonderful. It was, um, it was intended to be, as you said, a celebration of public housing and the public housing communities that are under attack, um, as well as a rally to say that we will you know, fight to defend the sites that the government wants to knock down. Um, and the people there, you know, really learnt about what the government's plans are because it's quite difficult to find out the truth about what the government plans for these sites, um, certainly from the government itself, but the media as well at the moment. Yeah, on, on that, can you run briefly through the government's current plan and how far along it is? Well, the the plan is, and, and they've targeted, it, it could be up to 11 sites. They oh. sometimes say eight, they sometimes say nine, mm-hmm. and sometimes they say 11. Mm-hmm. But it's a number of sites across inner city uh, Melbourne and inner suburban Melbourne that they're citing for uh, or slating for what they call renewal. Um, And in fact, it is demolition of the public housing buildings and their replacement by thousands of private apartments um, and a smattering of what's called social housing. So the public housing that exists will be replaced by um, what's called social housing, which is a form of housing um, for which tenants have um, fewer rights. Mm-hmm. But the real outrage, we say, is the fact that they'll be using this public land to build predominantly private housing. So thousands of private units that will not be available for occupation um, you know, by existing public tenants or certainly by the 35,000 people that are on the public housing wait list and desperately need housing. Mm. I mean, I, I had a little read myself, you know, during the government's Royal Commission into Family Violence, they had a report commissioned, it was written, entitled Victoria's Social Housing Supply Requirements to 2036. And in this report, it states that the state of Victoria in 2016 had just over 86,000 uh, public or social, you know, cheaper housing properties. Uh, a blend, that's a blend of public and community housing. It's only 3.5% of all homes in Victoria. As you just said, there's more than 35,000 applicants that could be families or individuals on the waiting list. And now that, that report said that we needed around 1,700 new affordable homes each year just to keep that 3.5% marker. That's not meeting those thousands, 
tens of thousands of people on the wait list, just keep it level. Steph, will the government's current current plan deliver enough public housing? Oh, look, it won't. It won't deliver um, certainly near enough. And and everybody knows that there is a critical shortage of public housing. So it's accepted at all levels of government. Certainly, anyone who struggles to find housing um, knows this. And if you look at the figures about what's on the table, what it will actually do is worsen the proportion of public housing um, to private housing. So there will be more private units built on these public blocks than there will be anything that's called social housing. So that 3.5% of public housing as a proportion of the whole will be worsened by this development. And that 3.5% is a figure that's dropped year on year for the last 20, 30 years. Governments have been criminal in their failure to invest in public housing and this plan is, is you know, another example of that. Yeah, an article I read recently by Sue Bolton writing in, the, in Green Left Weekly said that across the nine, or you've just told me perhaps 11 sites being sold, there were set to be more than 4,500 new developments, but of those only 188 would be new dwellings for public housing. So yep, that, you, that's spot on. Not even 5%. Why, why won't the government give higher minimum targets to developers to meet the demands? I mean, the developers could still turn a healthy profit selling just 1,000 new properties in the inner city. You know, why, why, won't, why haven't the government, in your opinion, given minimum targets to these developers beyond the measly 10% of existing stock, not even the stock that's being created? I mean, yeah, you'd have to ask the government that. It's a very good question. But we do know that the developers obviously are very powerful in, you know, in state and federal politics. And in previous um, instances where the government has, um, you know, tried to do what they call is, you know, a renewal or a social mix to housing where you have, you know, different forms of housing um, on the one block, private, you know, with other forms, um, the developers have been very firm about their requirements for um, the proportion of private housing to other sorts of housing and the, you know, uh, barriers between the private ho- housing um, mm. residents and other, others. So I, I think it's clear that the developers, you know, have a lot to say here about h- how much, um, you know, public or social housing they think the people that they will be selling their houses to would want to live near. Mm. I know that's been some criticism of a similar development in Carlton uh, where there was the idea of this social blend, you know, mixing public and private housing, but... It seems almost like a segregated space. You know, there's three-and-a-half-metre walls running between the private gardens and public gardens. What do, you know, and you're speaking to the tenants who are going to be forcibly removed from their current homes, you know, put into temporary accommodation, eventually move back into these new homes. How do they feel about the prospect of new homes, about the idea of this, you know, engineered social mix, a blend of social and private buyer housing? What are, What's... What are some of the comments and mood you've heard from, from tenants recently? Well, I mean, a number of the speeches at the rally yesterday I thought really very well captured um, their feelings about their own communities. It's pretty offensive, the government's argument that there's something fundamentally wrong with their communities. Mm. They, they value their communities. A number of people said, we don't call it public housing, we don't call it community housing, we call it family. Mm. Um, and there, there were people, neighbours of the um, public housing estates that spoke as well about how um, you know, how essential um, part of the communities the estates are. So this idea that uh, this notion of uh, social mixing needs to be forced on public tenants, I think, is a fair fee, and it's just an excuse for, um, you know, profit-making and gentrification. Um, and in terms of, the you know, uh, whether or not public tenants, you know, would like um, newer and better houses, you know, certainly the Auditor-General undertook a report, I don't know, four or five years ago into the state of public housing in Victoria, and, 
and they found that something like 40% of the houses are, you know, 40 or 50 years old, um, and they weren't built in a sort of, um, you know, quality quality um, style in those years. So these are 40 or 50 year old houses mm-hmm. that really are past their structural use by date. So certainly, we say that public housing. Um, does need need to be fixed up, mm. but if the government wants to invest in that, uh, it needs to be on an incremental basis and not involving sort of mass forced evictions. Mm. Aside from the um, evictions, what are the advantages to tenants in keeping these inner city blocks in government hands rather than selling them off to private developers? Well, look, obviously the ones that are sold to private developers, they won't they won't have a foot in. They'll be sold off to people who can you know, pay the five dollars $600,000 to live there or more. Um, but what will be rebuilt ostensibly for these tenants will be what's called uh, social housing. That That's not public housing, and the differences there are that things like the Victorian Charter of Human Rights don't automatically apply to tenancy agreements with community housing providers. It's a lot easier to be evicted from community housing than it is from public housing. Mm-hmm. Not all the same sort of restrictions around rent calculation apply to community housing. Um, as do public housing. And the other big issue is that from what we can see on the plans, many, if not the vast majority of the new uh, social housing apartments that will be built on these sites will be one and two bedroom units. And a great number of the families being displaced are three, four, five, um, even larger, and they certainly will not be able to return to these, uh, to these units. Steph, um, we've run out of time. It's a really interesting subject. We might follow this up next week with a tenant themselves. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And where can people find out more about this campaign? Uh, what's up next? Well, next we, we have we have our next rally on uh, the 4th of November at 1 o'clock at the Walker Street Estate, which is in Northcote. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people want to find out more, there's a Facebook group which is called Friends of Public Housing, um, they, they've been a long-standing sort of advocate for public tenants and they share a lot of material that's relevant to the issue. So, if, you know, people want to get a bit more detail. Well, we'll certainly put our Friends of Public Housing up on our website and once again, thanks heaps for joining us this morning, Steph. Thanks for having me. Ruminations, 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. This week's Over the Wall, Peter Davis speaks to Green's Adam Bant about the impact of cashless welfare card trials around Australia. There are large regional areas in most states of Australia already being forced to use Centrelink cashless welfare cards. Examples of areas in trial phases 1, 2 and 3 include New England, New South Wales, the goldfields of WA, East Kimberley, Sejuna and South Australia and more areas in the Northern Territory and other states. The list of places is too long to state fully in this introduction. Just do a Facebook search for No Cashless Welfare Card Australia and No Welfare Card and you'll see heaps of local community members, local people vocally opposing the impact of cashless cards in their areas of Australia. The cashless cards quarantine 80% of welfare payments. 
and the cards are rolled out universally to all recipients in a trial area. So every person on welfare in that region must use this cashless welfare card. The justification by the government so far has been reduction of alcohol, drug usage and gambling in areas of Australia. The assumption by the government is to put everyone on welfare on cashless cards to stop social issues. The policy is just to put in this cashless card, limit people's freedom and usage of money and not put in the social services to actually try and help fix the problem. I'm Adam Bant, the Greens member for Melbourne, and you're listening to Over the Wall on 3CR. Adam, welcome to Over the Wall on 3CR, and I'd like to ask you questions today about the cashless welfare card that's impacting people around Australia. What is your party's policy on the card and the expansion of the trials? The Greens oppose the cashless welfare card. We've been the only party in Parliament that has opposed it from the beginning. You don't improve people's situation by taking away their rights, full stop. This idea that if you're on low income in Australia, you somehow should have your right to spend your money controlled by the government... But that kind of approach doesn't apply to rich people and even if they do the wrong thing is, I think, discriminatory and we oppose it. It's already been rolled out in South Australia and in Queensland and in Northern Territory as trials. The card, the expansion of the trials, we don't think has been driven by um, any evidence that suggests that these kind of approaches work. In fact, the international evidence suggests the opposite. It's all about a form of paternalism and it's clear that it's not just about government is targeting or has targeted remote and Indigenous communities, but they've expressed a desire to ultimately have this rolled out um, in other places across the country as well. So do you think there's a long-term agenda to make this universal? I think there's a long-term agenda to make it much more broad than it is at the moment and perhaps to make it universal. It's clear that the government is on a rampage of demonising people who receive welfare and... They have said that they want it to be rolled out more broadly than it is at the moment. And I do fear that that could mean that it ultimately becomes universal. Now, the government may say they've got no plans to do that, and that may well be right, but it's clear the government wants this to be expanded. They didn't just do it just to have a trial and to stop. A lot of academics are also saying the questionnaire to welfare recipients on the card obscures the findings and methodology. For example, that there seems to be some encouragement for people to downplay their drug and alcohol use on the questionnaire. Will your party demand greater assessments of the trials with more extensive recourse to economic analysis and measurable outcomes? One of the things we've been really concerned about is that the reviews of the card been largely anecdotal and even the reviews themselves acknowledge that and it's not necessarily based on good evidence about whether this is helping anyone or not and so I take a lot of the data that the government is relying on in these reviews with a very large pinch of salt but even with that qualification it's concerning that in the um, in the reviews themselves to one in four people who were on the card were saying that they felt that it had made their lives worse, right, even with all of those qualifications about potential push-polling and questioning and it not being very scientific, you've still got a sizeable proportion of people who are saying this isn't in fact helping them. 
Yeah, because Malcolm Turnbull had his quite emotional statement in the Parliament where he was saying, you know, look, a child with fetal alcohol syndrome in the face and using these examples, these individual examples, but there seems to be a predominant part of the population that isn't in the type of category that labelling as, as gamblers, as alcoholics and who need to be controlled, who often people in the lowest income are actually extremely good at managing their budget because they have to out yeah. of necessity. You have to be, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, a couple more questions. So some problems around the card include penalisation of welfare recipients who have not presented as, as subject to alcohol, drug or gambling the inability to use the cards outside of their own towns or outside FPOS-based businesses and implementation costs that are variously judged as between 60 and 90% on top of their income support payments. Of these, do any draw your attention in particular and will your party be pursuing the government on them? Well, they're all of concern, but the fact that you're starting to restrict the freedom of movement of people means that Already, if, you are, if you're receiving some form of welfare as your income, you don't really have much of a buffer to deal with unexpected circumstances. But if all of a sudden you've got to deal with someone close to you getting really sick or ill or dying, or you have to deal with some other form of emergency that might require you to have to go somewhere else, you're faced with a double burden, you're double whammy. Not only do you have that immediate thing in your life that you've got to deal with, you've now got to deal with the fact that part of your income is being quarantined and you don't have the flexibility to spend it as you want. So all of those are issues, but the fact that you're starting to make it harder for people to deal with life's emergencies, especially when it might involve them having to travel somewhere, really tells you this is about taking away people's rights, basically, and making it tougher for them to have control over their own lives. The Senate Committee on Expansion on the Cashless Cards Trials has finished its submissions phase. Do you have any anecdotal insights into evidence heard and how the committee might find? Oh no, look, I think the committee will go through the process and come up with its findings in due course, but I can say that there's a very big body of of expertise, including people who've made submissions to the Senate, who've said, hang on, just be very careful about thinking that somehow the evidence backs up that this is working. In fact, a lot of the academic and the research literature is backing up what people are saying on the ground, namely it's not working for them. And last question is, several municipal councils have rejected the expansion of the card into their towns, including Bundaberg and Harvey Bay in Queensland. While this council activism seems to be expanding, is it likely the government is likely to ride roughshod over the policy of these councils and introduce the card there anyway? Uh, They may, but I'm really pleased by the approach that a lot of councils are taking. I think the government wants the cooperation of the local council and has certainly in the trial areas has been working closely with some of the local authorities. So I think that the move from the councils might, I think, will make the federal government sort of take a step back and think twice. Um, So I think that's a good thing. Adam Bant, thank you very much for your time and over the wall today. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be on. To sum up, listeners, that the vast majority of people on welfare are good money managers. They have to be to survive below the poverty line. This is a government that does not want to spend on helping people most in need. Rather, it is a government that prefers tax cuts to huge corporations. 
Over the Wall also speculates if the trial phases of the cashless card are part of a long-term government agenda to make cashless cards universal to all welfare recipients in all parts of Australia. What are the possible results of a universal cashless card? One woman in South Australia was placed on the cashless card in her community trial when she reached adulthood. She nominated rental payments to be deducted from her cashless card. Three months passed and a system error caused no rental payments to be made and she received an eviction notice. This is a public service announcement. So thanks to the folks from Over the Wall for that coverage, a really important issue and yet another one we need to keep our eye on. And coming up next, we're going to be speaking to Paul Barrett. He's on the line and he's worked in the Commonwealth Public Service for more than 30 years. He's been Secretary of the Department of Primary Industries and Energy, Secretary of the Department of Defence, and conducted Australian government business in more than 30 countries, and particularly in uh, China and Japan. So, you know, huge experience to bring to the issue that we're going to discuss. And uh, he's currently President of Australians for War Policy Reform. Paul Barrett, welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Good morning. Judith, how are you? I'm well, thanks. And did I get all that right? Uh, just one word wrong. Uh, Australians for War Powers Reform. For, thank you so much. Yes, that's, that's correct. And so can you be as so a welcome and can you tell us what, uh, what it is, what your organisation is, war, for, uh, the Australians for War Powers Reform? Yes, we're an organisation that's campaigning to shift the power to take Australia to war or international armed conflict is a better description these days, uh, from, from the executive government, that means effectively the Prime Minister, to, to the Parliament. We think the Parliament should be involved in all decisions to, to deploy, deploy the Australian Defence Force into armed conflict. Okay, so just looking at the, um, the organisation itself, but you're fairly new, you're fairly young. When did you start? Sorry? When did your organisation begin? When was it? Uh, well, look, we began in, t- in 2012. We initially started as an organisation campaigning to have an independent inquiry into how we came to be involved in the illegal invasion of Iraq uh, along the lines of the Chilcot inquiry in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as the years went by, we... we, we, we we were looking for that both in its own right and because we thought when the truth about that was revealed, it would reveal the deficiencies of the way we make decisions to go to war. Right. But, uh, as the years have gone by, we've realised that um, any voters in, the t- in, in their 20s today was not yet a teenager when we invi- invaded Iraq. So we thought we should shift the focus just directly to uh, the issue of war powers reform, and of course we've made several other deployments since. So while yes. we would still like to see an independent inquiry into the Iraq war, our, our prime focus now is, is reforming the way to we, reforming the way we go to war. 
Yeah, and and what what specifically are you looking for or trying to achieve with that? Well, you'd have a variety of models. The the weakest model would be what they now have in the UK, which is simply a debate and a resolution in the House of Commons. So in in our case, it'd be the House of Representatives. So you would not go to war without an affirmative vote. I would like to see something more structured than that. I would like it to be a requirement that uh, it it is passed in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. This is in Australia you're talking about now? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that uh, before that happens, you would have a properly constituted standing committee of the parliament that would table a report on what the uh, what the case for war is. That that is the, the sort of intelligence case it would would be a proper detached account of uh, of what the international situation that we're dealing with is. Uh, and that would be a sort of multi-party agreed version of the facts. And you would also have uh, advice from the Solicitor General or the Attorney General as to the legality of the war, and then the two houses would vote on the basis of a properly informed view of both facts on the ground and the legality of the proposed deployment. Well, it makes absolute sense, but what happens now? Uh what happens now is that it, 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 it is the prerogative of the executive. That is a legacy of... That, that means, in effect, cabinet. That is a legacy of the old days when we were all subjects of the king <laughs> and uh, as kings reluctantly handed over more and more of their powers to, uh, to parliaments, uh, they... They kept the uh, the power to declare war on their neighbours because uh, that was what kings did, and that just over time uh, that has remained the case. So it's it's rather amusing to see politicians who passionately proclaim their affection for a republic uh, clinging to the ancient prerogatives of the sovereign. It uh, is indeed, and and, <laughs> and, and yes, go on. So the other thing to make to make about that is that when when we say executive government, people would think there would be a very careful consideration uh, in Cabinet uh, weighing up all the facts. But the Cabinet only meets when the Prime Minister says so, and the Cabinet only discusses the things that the Prime Minister wants it to discuss. So that power really is in the hands of the Prime Minister. And when we, when we decided to... Uh, uh, invade Afghanistan, uh, that was just a phone call from Howard to uh, Downer uh, from the plane, uh, and so only two people involved in that decision. Yeah, so and, so that is that is worrying. So I think that kind of answers the question of why on October the 6th, Australians for War Powers Reform published an open letter to Malcolm Turnbull calling for parliamentary debate on Australia's approach to North Korea. What were you hoping to achieve? That's correct. Well, we, we wanted to do a couple of things. One was simply uh, uh, correct the record about the ANZUS Treaty. Malcolm Turnbull was talking about us being joined at the hip. Yes, uh, interesting, interesting yeah, comment. Yes, and uh, all that the ANZUS Treaty provides, the very first thing the ANZUS Treaty provides is that the the parties to it will make every effort to 
resolve their difficulties by peaceful means. So in accordance with the United Nations Charter. And have you had any response from the Prime Minister? No. (laughs) Well, look, yesterday Kim Jong-un threatened Australia with disaster if it continues to support the US position on North Korea. How serious are these threats? Oh, I think they're pretty pretty routine. Uh, They won't keep me lying awake at night. We certainly have an important target in, in... in Pine Gap, which is obviously a very important facility in U.S. defence capability. But I think if it ever came to a war on the Korean Peninsula, it, it would be a secondary target. North Korea would have its hands full with with uh, South Korea and the United States in the event of a war on the well, Korean Peninsula. Yes. Well, We're also used to pretty blustering talk from the North Koreans, but... Um, Yes. One needs to understand what that bluster is all about. North Korea's main aim is to normalise its relations with the rest of the world. Now, you might think they go about that in a strange way, but there there have been, during the Clinton era in particular, there were negotiations that led to agreement that the, the US and North Korea would move towards normalisation of relations and that... And I guess we're now in a, in a very different era with with Trump as president of the United States. But uh, Paul Barrett, we're we're kind we're running out of time. But there, in an article that you wrote, I think just a couple of years ago, I think you made a, you kind of summed up what's going on. And and what you said is, it is one thing for the United States to be pursuing its civilizing mission, defending its commercial interests, and defending its honor. Australia has no business pursuing these romantic notions. Yeah. <laughs> and we would be far better placed. I'll, I'll stand by that. You'll stand by that. So thank you so much for making time for us this morning. I think it's on our minds generally, you know, what's been going on internationally and with North Korea. So I think you've, you've provided some reassurance, but also what needs to happen, which is this needs to be debated openly rather than a secret uh, you know, mission in which only a couple of people in government are involved. So all the best yes. with your work. And your, uh, and your listeners can, can uh, if they Google Australians for War Powers Reform, they can get a lot more information on our uh, on, off our website. Fantastic, and I'm sure so they will. For, <laughs> thanks very much for inviting me to participate. Oh, my pl- our pleasure. Thank you. Hello, I am Mahsa Vahdat. Hi, I'm Marjan. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on your radio dial. Also on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Please subscribe. And you are listening to Monday Breakfast, uh, 3CR, 855 AM on digital or 3cr.org.au. Now, Hepatitis Victoria held its first meeting in an early founder's living room in 1992. 25 years later, uh, Hepatitis Victoria is a well-established not-for-profit community organisation and is the peak body in advocacy and support for people at risk from and currently diagnosed with viral hepatitis. To tell us more about the HepVic, about HepVic and also their upcoming 25th birthday celebration, we have CEO of Hepatitis Victoria, Melanie Eagle, on the line. Welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks, Will. 
Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, so first of all, um, I'm aware you're not a doctor, but can you give us an idea of um, the condition of hepatitis, um, viral hepatitis, and um, what it can do to you and who's at most at risk? Certainly. So just, I guess, the 101 basics that most of us don't know anything about, uh, of unless it actually affects us. So it's something that many of us are very ignorant about, despite its prevalence. So it's prevalent. About 2% of the community live with viral hepatitis in a chronic form. So uh, that's, you know, double the number of people that have epilepsy, for example. It's about 20 times the number of people who have HIV AIDS in Australia. So we're talking about a very prevalent condition. It's just a disease of the liver. That's all hepatitis means. There are actually a whole lot of different strains, but the ones that can go on and be chronic and lead to cirrhosis of the liver and ultimately uh, liver cancer are the types that are called hepatitis B and hepatitis C, and they're about equally as common. Now, they are slightly different in terms of the practical response. There is a vaccine against hepatitis B, which is... Uh, fantastic and we do have a free child uh, vaccine program and also free for a range of different priority populations and it can be treated quite well too if it's caught early enough uh, and if people undergo regular monitoring it can be contained so that's great and with hepatitis C since March last year we've now got new cures on the uh, I guess on the listed on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and available to everybody, which actually means there's a cure for hepatitis C, which is the other form that can go on and be very uh, serious. And I also, un- oh, sorry, uh, I also understand yep. that um, this is less um, invasive, less um, distressing the new treatments than the old ones were for hepatitis that's C. Right, well, for hepatitis yes, C. That's right. So we call it the new easy cure because, uh, yes, it's recently there and we've still got to make more people know about it. It's easy. Yeah, there are different regimes depending on the different uh, kind of subform you've got or genotype, but it can be as much as just one tablet a day. I mean, it's little, I should say, uh, but it might be a combination of tablets. No longer are there any injections. Up till now, we've had, you know, weekly interferon injections, giving people really bad side effects, things like that, and not even leading to a cure always. But we're not in that space anymore. These are the new easy cures because uh, the cure rates virtually, uh, well, it's kind of 95, 98%. That's fantastic. Um, So uh, apart from sort of spreading the word about um, cures like these and um, your free child, um, so, so it was the child vaccination um, so for hepatitis for B, hepatitis, the other yeah. form, there's a, a free vaccine, but there's also for a range of different priority uh, groups, uh, there's also the free vaccine. Absolutely. Um, what other services does HEPVIC provide for people diagnosed or at risk of viral hepatitis? We've heard about um, Liverwell. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that and HEPCheck? Certainly. So uh, I guess Liverwell's an, an expression of, uh, like all organisations, us moving into the digital age. Uh, it's got three different components. Two are up and available on our website, so uh, Check and Care Check are ways you can go online and analyse 
the health of your liver uh, by answering a few simple questions and then they'll uh, we're asking, being asked a few questions and if you can't answer them, they'll guide you through what the actual answers are. So it's an educative uh, way of being informed about hepatitis, uh, being able to assess your own liver, so checking in on that and checking on your risk factors for hepatitis. And then there's uh, the LiverWell app, which is under development at the moment, and it's going to be a way that people can, if they do have hepatitis, they can enter in the data that's relevant to them, so it's all in one place. They can use that to be prompted to go back to the doctor or to take their tablets or to uh, live a healthy lifestyle to keep uh, your liver health good and be well. That's fantastic. And um, Hep, Vic, uh, well, you've got projects coming out of your ears. There's also uh, community <laughs> profiles undertaken in um, Chinese, Vietnamese, um, Egyptian, uh, all sorts of um, different um, ethnic and culturally diverse communities um, happening around Victoria. Um, what was What's behind that? Um, the, the community profiles in that case? Yes, you asked earlier, Will, and I didn't actually answer you that about the different... Uh, perhaps people who are most likely to be at risk of hepatitis mm. and it happens that for hepatitis B in particular uh, because it's passed likely mother to child um, it can be in high proportions in certain communities and then continue to be passed on and uh, it's particularly high in certain uh, communities and we're trying to um, a bit understand that, map that and get to know how best to work with those different communities. So if I would just give you an illustration, uh, one in 10 Chinese Australians actually already has um, viral hepatitis. That'll be hepatitis B. And one in eight are Vietnamese Australians. So it's incredibly prevalent. And, you know, you'll sit there perhaps at a yum chow as I did yesterday. You look around the room and you could do the stats, you know. And yet often those people, too, don't talk about it enough, don't know about it. So we're um, getting to uh, understand things like those prevalence, understand where those people are, where they gather, how we might reach them, and then develop up resources in our languages appropriate for them and then use often bilingual educators or translators that go out with our staff um, and provide education about those risks and what they can do about them. That's fantastic. And so after 25 years of these great projects, um, you folks are celebrating your, your 25th birthday party. Um, we so are can, indeed. Yeah, can week. you tell us a bit more about that? It's pretty exciting. <laughs> well, uh, so as you say, we started in a support group, uh, form was formed, and uh, then uh, an application was made uh, to the Maya Foundation and uh, some philanthropic uh, support was gained and staff were employed and then we were uh, also, we grew to be supported by the State uh, mm -hmm. Department of Health, which continues on and as well as seeking funding from non-government sources. And now we provide that full range of uh, services for B and C, including the telephone helpline every day and uh, education and training to uh, workforces and you know lots of different things and we're celebrating 
the work that people have done over that quarter of a century by having a party this week. Uh, we've tried to get in touch with as many past board members and staff as possible, make sure that they know about it and can come because it's really been that unstinting effort of people over all those years that has caused the organisation to exist and then those number of other people helped. I mean, that's the purpose of the organisation, that we've been able to support and educate so many people and prevent them from getting uh, hepatitis or assist them to getting the right support and treatment if they do have it. So we're having a party. We're down at the Brunswick Food Store. We've got some music lined up, uh, including uh, the Dilly All-Stars and... Um, uh, Soul Muse, the, the Travellers... Yes, yes. So we're, we're kind of catering to a range of different flavours, representing the fact that um, a range of different people are affected by hepatitis. And we'll give out a few of our awards that we give out each year because we love to celebrate the effort of many people and we'll have a good time. Beautiful. And registration's free. We'll put up the link on our website, 3cr.org.au, but also just have a head over to hepvic.org.au for more resources and also to find out more about that event. Um, Melanie Eagle, thank you so much for coming on Monday Breakfast. Oh, thank you, Will. And you have a lovely day. Bye. Thank you. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855 on your radio dial or 3cr.org.au. The time is 21 past 8. Now, earlier this year, a number of refugee rights activists from the Refugee Action Collective decided to deploy some direct action in order to help the asylum seeker known as Saeed. Saeed is a stateless refugee who arrived in Australia with his brother, having both fled war and persecution. While the federal government granted his brother asylum, Saeed was deported to Iraq earlier this year, even though the Iraqi government did not recognise him as a citizen and actively told the Australian government not to deport him. We're about to be joined on the phone by James Crafty, an activist who took part in the direct action to prevent Saeed's deportation. As a result of this direct action at the Broadmeadows Detention Centre, where Saeed was formally held, James was charged with a series of offences, which were heard last week in Broadmeadows Magistrates Court. Now that the court proceedings are finished, we can discuss the case. James Crafty, thanks for joining us here on 3CR. Thanks for having me. James, can you tell us a bit about the action at the Broadmeadows Detention Centre? What did you plan to do and what did you hope to achieve? Uh, Yeah, sure. So the um, action at Broadmeadows was aimed at, um, I guess, trying to delay any deportation while uh, legal proceedings were going on while we were waiting to get that um, uh, signal from the Iraqi ambassador um, etc. And so what we were doing is we were holding a bit of a picket outside um, the, the detention centre and checking cars of the detention centre guards, etc., to make sure that Saeed wasn't being smuggled out and being deported to the airport. And what has happened to Saeed since his deportation? Do you have any information? Uh, we do have a few people who are still in contact with him. He is in hiding. Um, at the moment and um, is 
uh, by all accounts, still very, very sick. Um, his, his English isn't that great, so he's not able to communicate that clearly to, to the people he's talking to, but he's yeah, an incredibly sick elderly man who should be getting health care in Australia and in, is instead um, in hiding in Iraq. So that's uh, very sad to hear. Um, what were the initial charges levelled against you, James, and what, in your own words, happened during the event? So basically what happened was um, we were um, just checking the backs of, of cars and this took literally 10 seconds to just look in the back of the car, wave the car through. Um, a few of the security guards, etc., got a bit antsy at that um, and a lot of them, I mean, they, they torture refugees for a living so it, it's not that surprising. But a few of them started to drive through at fast speeds um, and on a couple of occasions I ended up on the bonnet of a car uh, and then, of course, the police, rather than charging the people who ran into me, uh, decided to arrest me and charge me with property damage and assault. Assault being because I um, knocked on the window or, as he alleges, punched the, the window and said, hey, you've just run over me, stop. So those initial... Uh, so that's what happened. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so that's what, what happened. And then um, we got dragged into court. And then by when we actually arrived at court, um, despite all of these charges that had been laying over my head for months, um, they then tried to, to lower it to tampering with a vehicle because they knew that those initial charges had no chance of sticking. Yeah, so once you got to court on Wednesday, the prosecution changed or appeared to kind of change their story instead of instead offering you, as you've said, a set of much lesser charges. Why do you think the prosecution did that? Like, why did they initially charge you with such serious offences and then after months of stressing, when you get into court, they offer you something much more minimal? What do you think the court was aiming to do through that process? Well, I I think that they were aiming to um, basically uh, get a guilty plea and they were determined to do that regardless of the facts of the matter, regardless of um, my situation, etc. So what they do is they just sort of, they push you and say, will you accept this, will you accept this? And, and every point that you say no, um, they're still determined to try and get that sort of outcome. Um, I mean, part of the outcome here is, is that I've got now, um, even for this much more minor charge, a good behaviour bond that lasts for 12 months. Um, and so that's something that they can try and use to prevent me from doing future activism for at least the next year. So I think that's part of it as well. Mm. It, it kind of feels it feels almost cynical to me that they can, uh, you know, provide one set of charges and then quickly provide another one in the in the in seeking a, a guilty verdict and putting all that pressure on it. It's a it's a cynical use of court time, I find. Um, oh, n- not only not only did they do that, but but um, they they were prepared to agree to a much smaller uh, a reduced summary of the facts. Mm. So there was a, a series of facts that they put forward on my charge sheet that said, you know, James jumped on the vehicle and then he pounded his fists and then he, he yelled and he swore and all the rest of it and all this nonsense. And then um, they then said, well, well, we'll write a new narrative that you, you're much more happy with to read to the magistrate if you accept that new narrative. So literally, rather than it being a, a series of contested facts, it literally became... A, a sort of almost a story writing competition where it was like, what can we write that James will agree to that we'll, we can sign off on? 
And on that note, James, can you tell me some of the reasons that you did agree to those lowered charges and you did accept the guilty without conviction? Can you tell me some of the um, the practical reasons that you were kind of... Uh, you, that was the right choice for you? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, while I would have absolutely loved to, to contest it and part of me sort of kicking myself over it, um, the reality is sadly that uh, police testimony is often viewed without um, criticism by the courts. So the fact that you have two police um, on their side as, as witnesses, uh, sadly, activist testimony doesn't um, often mount up to um, police testimony, um, even though it should. Uh, the charges I got currently result in me getting a $600 fine, and just to fight that would have ne- me- meant me having to take uh, a couple of days off work, um, witnesses having to take a few days off work, etc. So the actual cost of being able to, to stick it a bit further, um, and even then there's still a chance of being found guilty, were just too high. Um, and then, of course, the, the risk of getting a conviction to my name, which would impact on my ability to get um, work in the future and so on, and the risk that I'd be found guilty to, to the um, much higher set of narratives. So if you don't plead guilty to this watered-down work of fiction, mm. um, then their original work of fiction is, is the one that you have to defend yourself against. Um, and so all of the, the accusations about all this ludicrous stuff that I hadn't done would have come back into play, and, and we just made the assessment that that wasn't worth it. Mm. James, is this your first experience of the justice system in the context of political action? Uh, no, uh, sadly, I've been um, involved a few times. Uh, the The biggest case I was involved with was the um, Max Brand 19, the group of protesters who um, uh, were protesting outside a, a chocolate shop, which um, the uh, parent company gives care packages to sections of the Israeli military. That uh, court case went on for four weeks and the cops end up losing that and end up costing the state and taxpayers half a million dollars uh, just to try and go after a bunch of activists on, on trespass charges. So uh, I think so, I... That, that... Sorry, go ahead. No, go on. I think I know the answer, but does it does this experience put you off uh, engaging in direct action in the future? Do you think that's the court's intention to deter you from uh, being directly politically active? I, look, I, I think that's definitely part of it, and part of it is it's like, oh, you've got a few warnings on your belt. Some of them have been dismissed, but some of them stick, and you've now pled guilty to this. Um, you know, so if I do it again, there'll be a, a, another charge added. Mm, James, um, so I think it, it's just it's just that wearing down of people to try and. Um, prevent them. Of course, we know that the risks to people like myself are a hell of a lot smaller than the risks to refugees like Saeed and others who who, who face quite literally death if, if mm. they go back um, to, to war-torn countries, etc. So so the risk yeah. is worth it, yeah. uh, but it still it makes our lives harder. Look, James, um, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, thank you very much for joining us and thanks, as you've just said, for putting on your body on the line for others who may not be able to do so in their current situation. Uh, it's a really nice thing at this station to meet people who are passionately, actively pushing for humane change. Uh, thanks heaps for your time and um, good luck with all your future uh, political action. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.